Amen. Let's be seated. How many of you love that statement in Revelation? There shall be time no longer. A succession of events that we know as the passage of time is going to cease. There will be no such words as late or early or behind. Those will go away. By the way, I know when our brother was speaking, he was apologetic regarding the clock. I just want to take the opportunity to say how thankful I am after years here that you guys have never been clock watchers in the wrong sense. You know what I mean by that. It's not, trust me, my goal is never to say, I've got to preach for an hour. I don't think I've been known for short sermons since I've been here. My goal is never to go long. My wife will tell you how often I'm frustrated because I do want to keep it brief. But at the same time, think what we're counteracting. I mean, how many hours a week are you forced to sit and listen to the world's garbage at work or somewhere else? I mean, the the influx of that stuff is just titanic. So I appreciate uh, the choice of God's people to invest in their spiritual life. And it does take discipline to listen to preaching. It does. Uh, It's not supposed to be entertaining uh, the way the world is. I know that sometimes the preacher can make it boring. We never want to do that. But at the same time, active listening is important. It is one of those spiritual disciplines. And so I want to commend you for that. All right, John 3. It's so hard to not want to exposit that passage Uh, But we are going to use it as kind of a launch pad this morning. We don't normally do that. We want to stick to expository preaching, verse by verse, as a general rule. Uh, But as you know, if you've been here the last several weeks, we're taking some time to sort of zero in on the topic of uh, biblical evangelism. And again, just reviewing where we've been, our first message, we were talking about what is the Great Commission. I think sometimes if... We're not careful in our thinking. We may only emphasize a part of the Great Commission. Uh, sometimes, and, and I want to be—I don't want to be unduly critical, but sometimes, if a church says we focus on the Great Commission, what they mean is we we emphasize evangelism, which I'm not against, rightly understood. But evangelism is part of the Great Commission. Making lifelong disciples, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever, Christ said, whatsoever I've commanded you. So what we're doing here today is part of the Great Commission. Evangelism is part of it, but it's the ongoing cycle of, of discipleship unto maturity, and that wheel has rolled down to you and I. So the Great Commission is that whole cycle, and we don't want to leave any uh, part of that out. Then a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Lord's words when he called those apostles on the shores of Galilee. Follow me, he said, and I will make you fishers of men. And we were examining the question from where does a truly evangelistic heart come from? I fear many times an attempt is made to make God's people evangelistic through outside coercion. People can hear how pathetic some preacher thinks they are, or how giving is down, or stats are down, or they try to prop everybody up with donuts and 
great stories of missionary exploits and those things do not give us God's evangelistic heart. It's abiding in Christ. It's nearness to God that transfers that evangelistic heart to us. So I want to make sure our focus in this discussion is follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Becoming a fisher of men is a result of nearness to Christ. It's not going to happen any other way. You and I are conduits. No more. So, unconfessed sin is left. We become prayerless. Now the Holy Spirit goes from a ministry through us to a ministry to us. Pipe is clogged. So the issue isn't more coercion from the outside. The issue is this. The Lord says, just like that branch that has to abide in the vine, you want to bear fruit for God? Here's your focus. Nearness to Christ. And as you draw near to Him, that heart begins to be reproduced in you. It doesn't come any other way. We talked about Paul's burden for the Jews in Romans 9 that I, I can't enter into experientially. I, I can't honestly tell you this morning if I could choose hell for myself to save other people, I would do it. I wish I could say that, but I can't. Paul could. But where did that come from? It came from nearness to Christ. That's where. So it's critical to talk to God about men before we talk to men about God. See, Christ, the Son of God. If ever a man had lots of ministry to do, <laughs> it was him. But yet we see times where he deliberately withdrew from the needy crowds to go spend time with his father. What was he able to say to Simon? Simon, the devil has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. What's the next sentence? But I have prayed for thee. You mean he took time away from all the people that needed healing and tinkering with their soul? Yes. What a pattern we should follow. You and I, with respect to the outside world, have the roles of ambassador and priest. And we ought to take them both seriously. A priest takes men's needs before God. An ambassador speaks God's message to men. And successful ambassadors in the spiritual realm take their priesthood seriously. Now next week, Lord willing, we'll just talk about practicality. How we're going to attempt to go forward in this as a church family. And again, we want a biblically balanced, spirit-led approach. And I'm going to tell you this up front. The biggest thing I'm going to ask for is people committed to pray. Do you understand that without that, it's all useless. Useless. Oh, we can make all sorts of smoke and noise and hubbub. But it won't change anything for eternity. All right, this morning, though, we're going to talk about biblical methodology. Some basic principles of gospel preaching or gospel discussion, which is a lot of what it was that we see consistently in the New Testament from Christ and the apostles and the early churches. Now, 
I'll admit, I find it very, very difficult to condense this into one message. I'm going to try. A lot of the passages I'm going to reference would be very helpful as separate sermons. And I haven't even started yet, hardly, and I feel like I'm already leaving a lot out. But what? let me give you up front some of the goals in this. The first is not to be combative just for the sake of it. I'm going to say some things that are very against a lot of the prepackaged evangelism courses that are out there, but the primary concern, what saith the Scriptures? And do you believe this morning that anything we try to do for God, if we start on a foundation of what works, what produces a crowd, what the world likes, what I feel, we're already going the wrong way. So what I hope we're concerned with is what the Scriptures actually teach. Secondly, I'm hoping some of the things said this morning will prompt further study. I want to challenge you. Our sign out front, what does it say? Berean Baptist Church. Why? Why, why? why pick that name? Why are those people immortalized in the Scriptures? Because they had this quality. Even a miracle-working apostle who wrote roughly half of the New Testament preaching in their midst, they opened up their Bibles that they had, which was the Old Testament, and they searched the Scriptures daily whether these things were so. You mean Paul didn't puff out his peacock feathers and say, hey, I'm the man of God, you just do what I say. No, he commended them for searching what he said, running it through the lens of Scriptures, and then it says, therefore, many of them that... Many of them believed. Because they wanted the words of God, they came to faith in Christ. So I want to challenge you. Some of the things I say, I can just barely point out these byways. If you want to discuss it further, come talk to me. I would love to. I'll mention some resources maybe that might be helpful, but I'm hoping this triggers further study to where you survey the book of Acts and the Gospels and check out what I'm saying. Because I can tell you it's those books when I was newly saved, that radically transformed my methodology and put me at odds with what I was being taught in a Baptist institution. And it was about the most miserable I've ever been in my life for those nine months. But I can tell you, the Word of God is true. And it can be trusted. Thirdly, I want to help us have a right mindset in reaching the perishing world around us. Let me just put this bluntly. I might be wrong with some here. I probably am. But some of you will resonate with this, I think. From where I've been over the years, I think a lot of God's people sitting in Bible teaching churches, when a preacher gets up and says, we're going to start emphasizing evangelism, here's what some of them are thinking, especially if they're a quieter person. They're thinking... Oh boy, now for the next several weeks, I'm going to be made to feel guilty for not doing something that I hate doing. Can I tell you something? The reason you hate doing it may not be because you're wrong. 
It may be because a lot of what's taught is not in step with the Holy Spirit's leading, but is actually contrary to it. I think a lot of people, they, they think of evangelism and they think of adopting some different tone of voice, becoming argumentative, irksome conversations that are awkward, coming up to complete strangers and saying, do you know you're on your way to hell? Examine the New Testament. You don't see that. So, seeing these principles put together can be very freeing. And I can tell you, doing the work of evangelism in cooperation with the Spirit of God is not going to be irksome like that. Remember, God has before ordained works that we should walk in. And what you see in the New Testament is God threw doors open, and they walked through them. So, all right, let's just begin, though, with some critical things to remember when dealing with all lost people, just general principles. Remember, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Where is Helena this morning? The people. If you could conduct an interview of everybody who lives in the city and could ask them this question, what is your hope? What is your resting place? What is your peace? Many may say, I don't have peace. Why are the casinos full? Why are the bars full? Why are the houses of fake religion full? Mankind intrinsically searches for water where there isn't any. That's why. Friends, there's one message, one body of truth that has the power to deliver men from darkness into light. One message. Secondly, we must remember that unbelief is not a condition, it is a position. In other words, there's no such thing as an objective, innocent Christ rejecter. Uh, many today try to put themselves in a separate category. Well, I'm not a Christian. I'm not an atheist. I'm just sort of sorting out the facts. Well, biblically, this is the condemnation. What is it? That men just were learning the facts. No, the condemnation is light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So there is no neutrality in this. Somebody can sit in church for decades. They can hear Bible preaching. They can hear the gospel. They can nod and they can fancy that they're neutral. If you're not with Christ, you're His enemy. And friends, according to Romans 1, which says some profound things going behind the curtain of the human heart, mankind knows many things by virtue of being made in the image of God. Along that same line, every person is born with a God consciousness, and we ought to expect that to be the case. Romans 1.19 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Every human being 
of a normal mental capacity has an innate God consciousness, a magnet in his soul. Have you ever wondered why little children seem to always want to hear about God? But many adults do not. Because they do this to themselves. They take their God consciousness, they take the witness of conscience and creation, and they stomp it in the mud. That's why Romans 1 says that all of mankind is without excuse, strictly on the basis of observing creation and having an inward God consciousness. There's no such thing as an objective atheist. He has done this to himself. So evangelism is appealing to the awareness of God that every person already has. Next, you can be sure the Holy Spirit is doing exactly what He said He would. The Lord was leaving in John 16. He said an astounding thing. It's expedient for you that I go away. That's another discussion, but what a statement. And he says when he, that is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, what's he going to do? He's going to reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know what else is going on in Helena? There's a voice speaking to men's souls. In one sense, he's quiet. But to the willing soul, he's louder than the nightclub music. He's louder than the hall of joy of the slot machine. He's louder than Netflix. And the Holy Spirit is reproving men of sin. He's pointing out what's wrong with their behavior of righteousness. He's pointing out a standard that they're not meeting. And he's reproving them of judgment, that there's a day of coming accountability. And friend, listen, no matter what somebody says, they have that knowledge within themselves until they sear that conscience so much that they cannot hear. And you and I ought to expect that to be there. We have an omnipotent ally bearing witness of the Gospel right in the very souls of men. We've got to have that confidence. Next, the wicked one centers his effort on distorting the central truths of the gospel message. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. Paul says, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Friends, this is a spiritual war. I mean, you can take the most brilliant human intellect... And you can feel like you've spoken to that person and presented the gospel with unmistakable clarity. Maybe, you're, maybe afterwards you're, you're almost marveling at how well you think you spoke. And that person can parrot back many gospel facts, give a mental assent to it, but here's what they can't understand. The free gift of Christ's righteousness given by grace through faith alone. The devil seeks to blind men on that one point. And if he can do that, he bars them from eternal life. Sometimes the most dangerous place to be is within religion that uses the name Jesus. 
And that's precisely why the cathedrals of fake religion are packed this morning. Because people's minds are blinded to the fact that Jesus paid it all. I've seen this illustrated in so many times in vivid detail. One man, you remember, was in the prison ministry, and this guy, God, had been dealing with him. And uh, he was involved in a, a, just a, a fake religious system. And I was very impressed of heart. One of those services, I preached some, I don't remember the exact thing. It was some, something along the lines of seven marks of a false religion. Man, fervent in spirit, just denouncing idolatry, denouncing fake priesthood, denouncing relics and icons. This one gentleman sits there with his eyes like saucers, and he comes after me, uh, up to me afterwards, and he hugs me. He says, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. By the way, this week, do you think you can go find me some rosary beads? What was happening? 2 Corinthians 4.4 was happening. Like, oh, Charlie, didn't you hear a word I just said? What's the goal? Evangelism. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Remember, this is a religious man. This is a guy who paid his taxes and showed up at the temple sacrifices and had a squeakly clean religious reputation. I guarantee you he didn't expect what Jesus said to him. He comes wanting to know the source of miracles. He comes wanting to just know a little bit about Jesus' background and the Lord says, you have to be born again. Huh? You say, Nicodemus, you need such a radical transformation that human effort can never, ever produce it. All flesh can produce is more flesh. Friends, every salvation is a sovereign miracle performed by God. And if we can go forward in this work without a sense of the impossibility, without divine power, without a sense of mystery, without a sense of the need for supernatural aid. We're not getting it. I told some of you before, I used to think I was good at evangelism. I could speak, I could answer questions, I could manipulate. I can't save a soul. I cannot raise the dead. So friends, the goal of gospel preaching <clears throat> is not securing people who want to go to heaven. I challenge you, search the New Testament and find me an example of somebody who evangelized to say, hey, would you like to be sure you're on your way to heaven? You better go to the Apocrypha because it's not in the Bible. Some of the children quoted the verse today. And this is life eternal. What is it? That they might go to heaven and ride a cloud and play a harp. Friends, heaven's a place. I tell you truly, a man can be robbing a bank and smoking a joint and tell you he wants to go to heaven. 
Why wouldn't he want to go to a place that's pleasant and comfortable and gives him everything he thinks he wants? He could be purely humanistic. There's a vast difference between wanting to go to heaven and wanting eternal life, which is the life of God in you. And this is life eternal, the Lord says, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The way to what? The way to heaven? No. The way to the Father. Friends, biblical evangelism doesn't produce people who merely want some fire insurance plan. It produces people who want God. Man's biggest problem isn't that he doesn't want to go to heaven. It's that he doesn't want God to be there when he gets there. And it's a supernatural work that changes that. All right, now, how exactly did Christ and the early church go after the souls of men? Let's just give some basic principles. Again, we're just going to touch on some things. Number one, in fact, I'll just quote uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. Stephen is martyred, and right on the heels of that persecution, it says, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So the first principle I'll give, here's what it is. Biblical evangelism is not an event. It is a mindset. It doesn't mean things cannot be scheduled. I'm not saying that. But an evangelistic heart is not merely pointing to my calendar and saying, I'm going to be evangelistic there and here. Why does it say they went everywhere preaching the Word? And it doesn't give us a lot of detail. Because that was the mindset they went forward with. I mean, do you realize in your, let's say tomorrow, you get up and go about your day. You go to work, get stuck in traffic, you get a flat tire. Go sit at the tire place three hours. Or have, your, have to change your kitchen faucet like I was talking about in Sunday school this morning and have to go to Lowe's four times. It wasn't really that much, but it felt like it. In all that chain, let me ask you something. How many encounters are accidental? How many? Is this guy over here reading the newspaper? Is he just coincidentally there? Uh, the person at the desk of the office you walk into, that coworker that drives you bonkers, is it an accident? Is it merely a coincidence? Do they just happen to be there? No. Remember, part of the spiritual armor is feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The idea is it goes with you all the time. It's working in cooperation with the leading of the Spirit of God. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, a verse that's often quoted, but... Uh, maybe the entire context isn't always remembered. When he says to be ready to give an answer, he doesn't mean people are going to flock up to you and they notice how well you're dressed and how good life is going and how much money you have in the bank. The context is actually trial. But here's what he says. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Now let's just take a few principles of that with having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? 
It means cultivating a God consciousness where He's my master and I'm His servant. And as I'm going about my day, that's the relationship. And so there's this sense of God being above and being supreme and above all and being the one in charge. And out of that, be ready always. Why? Because doors of evangelism can open anywhere at any time. If we're ready. And often it's in the context of trials and or the breaking of your plans. That's why they ask a reason for the hope. It's in you. We think of John 4. Christ sits down at the well in Samaria to speak with this immoral woman. Or Nicodemus comes to him by night away from the crowd. In Acts 3, Peter's just going to the prayer meeting, heals this man, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this crowd gathers and Peter's preaching to them. That wasn't on his calendar. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. What brought him to the foot of the cross? Do you think Paul had in his palm pilots? Does anybody use those anymore? Paul had in his palm pilots say, when I get thrown in prison, I think I'm going to do some evangelistic work. I'm not even sure they knew they were doing evangelistic work sitting there singing. But you know what they were doing? Sanctifying the Lord God in their hearts. And here comes that man in tremendous anguish of soul. There's something different about those guys. In Acts 8, Philip's led to the Ethiopian eunuch again spontaneously. So, Evangelism can include organized scheduled events. It can include that, like Paul in the marketplace. But evangelism is a mindset that comes out of a cultivated fellowship with God. And more often than not, the doors will be spontaneous. Secondly, boy, is this huge. And I hope everybody hears this. It is not necessary and can be very damaging to force doors open in the energy of the flesh. Damaging. It can be. When I was first saved, I'm telling you, I wrongly understood this. I thought I had to talk to everybody. I thought I had to... If I didn't jam it in people's face, I was just pathetic... Somebody says, yeah, well, we're told to preach the gospel to every creature. And Jesus said He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, but pay attention going through the life of Christ and the apostles and tell me, did they speak to every person they saw? No, they did not. In fact, there were times when Christ deliberately withdrew Himself. In fact, you can trace the public, and I'll commend you to your own study on this, Trace the public preaching sessions of the apostles in the book of Acts. And here's what I think you'll find without exception. They did not show up with a bullhorn to start screaming at an unsuspecting crowd who could care less. They didn't do that. At Pentecost, the Lord threw the door open. Same thing in Acts 3 and 4. Paul, when he preached at Mars Hill... They brought him and said, hey, would you, would you teach us what you're saying? Peter going to Cornelius' house, the door opened. Stephen, 
Do you know, even the crowd that stoned Stephen to death showed up of their own volition to hear his message, and God opened that door. The Lord said an interesting thing in Matthew 7, verse 6. I'll just read you the verse. He said, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, there's a lot there, but I just want to give this principle that he's mentioning. Here's what it is. Don't force spiritual truth on those that are obviously antagonistic and could care less. Do you realize even the persecutors in the Scriptures, like Saul, chose to be there? Uh, many people idolize George Whitfield. He was definitely a son of thunder, who I think highly of, but I think many don't realize George Whitfield never sought out to be a cornfield evangelist. Do you know why George Whitfield preached in the open air? Because the churches kicked him out. That was never an idea he had and tried to fulfill. God opened the door and thrust him through it. In fact, he didn't want to do it. But the Lord clearly opened that door. So friends, cramming things down people's throat that have no obvious interest is at best useless and at worst can be positively damaging and push them away. I think a lot of people carry around a false guilt. If I don't ramrod this on people, you don't see that in the New Testament. In Acts 18, you know, Paul would always go to the synagogue because that was the open door. He went to the Jews first, but here was a place where the Jews were gathered to discuss the Old Testament. So it's a very, uh, dare I say, logical place to go and do gospel work. But in Acts 18, verse 6, when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Even with the group that deliberately came to listen to and debate him, they showed up on purpose for that reason. He didn't force the issue when the door was not obviously open. All right, thirdly, we ought to be on the lookout for those who are actually willing to hear and spend more time on them. Well, let me just say this in reference to door-to-door -door evangelism. I'm not opposed to it. I'll probably be doing some. But here's where this can become a problem, is unbiblical expectations. What, is, what would biblical door-to-door -door evangelism look like? I'm going to say more on this probably next week. But let me just start here. Here's what it's not. It's not going door to door and expecting a lost world to all of a sudden want to show up at church and love it when they don't know God. Secondly, it's not trying to change our church so that the world that hates God will enjoy it. Thirdly, it's not going to try to argue people into agreeing with us and win arguments. Here's what it should be. In the context of prayer and seeking the leading of God, what I'm doing is looking for that one out of ten or one out of a hundred that actually is willing to look into this mirror and hear. 
and the vast majority that aren't at the place they want to hear now, to sit and argue with them is fruitless. Again, biblically, even when they preach in these large gatherings, they took aside those, and again, you can follow this through Acts. And Christ did it too. They took aside those who were interested and spent more time with them in private. I mean, if somebody is stifling yawns, looking at their watch and trying to get out of the conversation, for crying out loud, let him go. I'm telling you, I've seen that violated. It's unbelievable. I'm tempted to tell stories. I probably shouldn't because I don't want to go too long today again. I can't explain it, but I've seen it a number of times. Two people sitting side by side hearing the same message. And one of them is like the Spirit of God is just gripping them by the collar. And one of them can't wait to go check his email. Who should the time be spent with? The one whose mind is open to hear more. Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Here he is preaching to this pagan crowd, and it says at the end, we don't really know how it ended, it doesn't say, but, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto them and believed. So in general, there's three responses. There's those that oppose. There's those that are willing to hear more at some point. And then there's those that want to hear more now. And that was who they spent the time with. In fact, the terminology is interesting. It says, certain men clave unto him and believe. So the idea is, Paul took them aside, invested time in them, and they came to faith in Christ. But it wasn't in the public concourse. It wasn't in a two-minute conversation in some basement room. There was time spent teaching them. In fact, the book of Acts ends that way. Let's turn there. Turn there with me. Acts 28. I mean, you want to talk about something that flies in the face of a lot of what poses as evangelism. I mean, the difference is just, it, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so serious. Okay, the end of Acts 28, while you're turning there, we give context. Paul's finally getting to Rome. He's under house arrest. He's going to be there two years with a soldier watching him. And only heaven will record how many of those men uh, came to eternal life by carrying out what they thought was lame duty, being chained to this Jewish prisoner. Well, verse 16, when we came to Rome, Luke is there with Paul. The centurion delivered uh, Romans, or I'm sorry, Acts 28, 16, did I say that? Paul suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Verse 17, it came to pass after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, men and brethren, though I've committed nothing against the people or customs of the fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem under the hands of the Romans. So Paul preemptively, he's defending himself, expecting them to already hate him. And they said, we don't even know what you're talking about. But we do have an interest in what you have to say. 
Verse 22, we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, talking about Christianity, we know everywhere it's spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, verse 23, there came many to him unto his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not, and they departed. So he preaches the gospel. Some believe, some believe not, and they go. Friends, it is amazing to me. If you avoid manipulation tactics, some will rise up with feigned indignation and say, you didn't give them a chance to be saved. Because I didn't have sloped aisleways, lights turn low, piano begins to play. You know what that can be? Manipulation. If you preach the gospel, you give men a chance to be saved. And you can't make them believe. Fourthly, along those same lines, and this is also critical, there is a sense of urgency, but not of hurry. Okay, what's the difference? The implications are massive. Yes, today is the day of salvation. Yes, there's an imperative from heaven. Yes, I don't know, sir or ma'am, if you're even going to have tomorrow. Friends, a lot of so-called evangelistic material makes the mistake of trying to hurry. What if they die tonight? We've got to get them saved. Here's my response to that. If the Lord is really preparing their heart and doing a work in it, and He's really drawing them, do you think He's going to respond by killing them just before they come to Christ? I mean, you think of the summary. In fact, keep your finger there in Acts. Turn to, turn to 1 Corinthians. And please follow me here. We're going we're gonna to mention several things, but this is just critical. We are almost done, I promise. Stick with me. 1 Corinthians 15. And keep your finger in Acts 28. So Paul is summarizing the gospel to this church at Corinth. Look how he summarizes it. Verse 2, by which ye are also saved, talking about the gospel, if ye keep memory what I've preached unto you, and yes, yes, unless ye believed in vain. So there is a real possibility of a spurious and shallow false faith. But what was the message, Paul? For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that five hundred brethren, okay, etc., etc. Now back in Acts 28, and we'll talk about that passage. What does that summary imply? A lot of Bible teaching generally has to happen for a person to actually exercise saving faith. How do they know Christ died according to the Scriptures? Because they're taught the Scriptures. 
How do they know He rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures? Because they've been taught the Scriptures. You can go through the book of 1 Corinthians. Former pagan Gentiles and the number of references to Old Testament truth is staggering because they had a foundation under them. Friends, Jesus' or John's words, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world is meaningless without an Old Testament background. It means nothing. It's only as you understand the fall and you understand the first promise of that Savior and you understand the devastation of the law to human nature and you know something about those lambs sacrificed on that altar and the blood that was shed and the constant Bible theme of something innocent must die for the sins of the guilty and you learn that Old Testament history is building to a culmination and then all of a sudden, as Jesus is walking right among all those little lambs on leashes heading for the temple, John says, there He is. But it's only a prepared soul that that means anything to. Now I ask you the obvious question. Why in verse 23? Paul is is speaking to religious Jews who know their Bible, at least in letter. So I want to ask the question, why in the world did Paul take an entire day to reason with him? Can somebody please teach Paul how to evangelize? Come on, Paul. Just ask if they want to go to heaven. We'll worry about that other stuff later. Let's just just repeat a prayer and Make sure they ask Jesus into their hearts. It's curious you never see that. Why? Because that doesn't save people. That's why. Saving faith is based on the Word of God, which is what produces faith in the human soul. So this trickery to boil it down to one, two, three, four verses and some little intellectual prayer, it leaves people with no foundation. And even to a Jewish crowd, Paul saw it necessary to take day after day after day after day to convince them from the Word of God that their Messiah had come so that they could actually exercise intelligent saving faith. You know, at Mars Hill, Paul starts at creation to this pagan culture, going from familiar to the unfamiliar. And let me point this out, there is no formula. How long does it take to bring a soul to Christ? I'll answer that for you. As long as it takes. There's an urgency. There is not a sinful hurry. Some people get the idea, well, if we take too long, they're not going to be interested. Friends, i got news for you. If God is working in somebody's soul, they're not just going to run. They're not just going to run. Let me just say this in passing. Rather than learning some five verses out of Romans, I think all of God's people should strive to have an overall understanding of the Gospel beginning in Genesis. I don't mean to have a theological degree, but know the basic framework. It's interesting when Philip uh, comes to this Ethiopian eunuch. Remember the conversation? 
you understand what you're reading? How can I except some man should guide me? Maybe he's reading what we know as Isaiah 53. Well, what a coincidence, right? Not exactly. Divine appointment. Amen. And what does it say? Philip hops in, begins at the same scripture, and preaches unto him Jesus. A book I've recommended to several of you, and I'm telling you as a pastor, I would love to see every single person in this church get, read, get it and get, read the introduction at least. It comes from New Tribes Mission. I don't, I don't endorse everything with them. It's written by Trevor McElwain. It's called Firm Foundations, Creation to Christ. If you want information, come talk to me afterwards. But what that book does an excellent job is, is laying the foundation under people to bring them to actually saving faith, not through manipulation, not through salesmanship, not with Reverend Wonderful's book who brags about all the people he's brought to Christ, but actually using the Scriptures, waiting for God to perform the miracle, plowing as long as it takes, seeing people uh, come to Christ. That's one of the best books on that. Friends, the survey method is powerful. You think of Luke 24. Here's the discouraged disciples. You remember? And here they're walking along, just hanging their heads, and Jesus comes up next to them. They don't know who it is. What are you talking about? What? what have you been in a barn? What do you mean, what things? And, uh, <laughs> oh, fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all things concerning himself. And what did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us? On the day of Pentecost, Peter walked through Old Testament survey history to lay the foundation of the coming Messiah. The message that got Stephen stoned to death in Acts 7 is an incredible lesson in Jewish history culminating in the message of Christ. Uh, Paul in Acts 28, what we just saw, same thing. You see that again and again and again. And let me say this. Take time to answer questions. I've seen materials and it drives me crazy. If they ask a question, just say, oh, we'll get to that, but let's just, let's just get you saved. What? Somebody says, I, uh, well, I, just, I believe in evolution. We all came from monkeys. And here comes the would-be soul winner. He's going to take him right to Romans 10 and have him repeat a prayer. How dare you? How in the world can you understand the gospel if you think you came from an ape in a primordial soup? Evangelism begins with God. If you have no idea who God is, you have no idea how you've offended Him. You have no idea the basics of salvation. You have no clue who Christ is. And friends, that takes time. And an increasingly, increasingly pagan American culture where the God in Montana is this country music, half drunk, Lord's Prayer repeating, smack his wife in the middle of the week and show up to church on Sunday. That's the God of Montana. That's not the God of the Bible. And it takes time to lay the foundation there. Friends, I'm not saying you have to have a theological degree. Andrew brought Simon to Christ in a spiritual infancy. And by the way, your testimony is one of the most powerful tools. That's why Paul shared his so much. But the idea that it's a hurried sales presentation is a terrible misnomer. 
That's why I'm a big fan and what we're going to emphasize here. The goal is evangelistic Bible studies over weeks or months with people that demonstrate an interest to actually know something about the Word of God. Sometimes it's a few weeks, a few days. Sometimes it's months. That's up to God. Our job is sow the seed, to plow, to pray, and let God work the miracle. Remember when the Lord said, some plant, some water, some reap. What happened to that concept today? Somehow we get the idea, if we don't reap, we failed. Where did we get that from? Friends, let me tell you something. I'd rather have a group of people that talk to one person in six months and give them one Bible verse at the leading of the Spirit than try to ram a sales presentation down the throat of a thousand people a week. Because all the second one's doing is inoculating people against the gospel. In the book of Acts, the Greek word dialegamite, it's where we get our English word dialogue, it occurs ten times, all in connection with Paul's ministry. It's translated preach, reasoned, and disputed. But again, we get our English word dialogue from it. And the idea is a rational discussion. Conversational. Yes, there's public preaching times, but most of the encounters evangelistically in the New Testament were conversational and they were long. In fact, even at a message like Pentecost, and with many other words, he did testify and exhort. We don't even have all the Pentecost message recorded, and we don't have a lot of uh, all of, of most of them. We're given select emphasis. But listen, the gospel message is very logical, spiritually logical to a truly open mind. It makes sense to somebody who's willing to actually hear. Let me think, does any rational person, truly rational person, deny that man is evil? I Some do. I don't know how. Does any rational person look at the mind-boggling complexion of creation and say, oh, this, I think this came out of a Big Bang? Again, the atheist does that to himself. He didn't get there by solid thinking. And when a mind is truly open, the, lodge, the gospel has a very logical progression culminating in the message of Christ given as the free righteousness of God, and it appeals to men's emotion, intellect, and will, and we cannot rush that. So the gospel isn't some bait-and-switch magic trick. Hey, don't you want to go to heaven? What a bunch of baloney. You're asking people to commit the keeping of their soul to God in a radical transformation of life that may very well mean all their acquaintances turning their back on them and their head on a chopping block. I don't know about you, but I don't want to sign up for that unless I have a solid foundation and reason to do it. It's old stats, but it is interesting. It was back in the 1980s. Southern Baptist Convention was horrified to find out that 40% of converts to Mormonism came from Baptist churches. And uh, they went into disaster uh, fix mode and began to teach against Mormonism and everything. From what I can tell, they never addressed the real issue. What is the only thing that would take somebody 
out of a church that actually preaches the gospel and land them in Mormonism, it's one thing. They never had a comprehensive understanding of the God of the Bible or the way of salvation. And I'm going to say dogmatically, somebody who actually understands this book and the God that wrote it and who Christ is would never be satisfied with Mormonism. And the way you fix that is not teaching against Mormonism for six months. It's laying a foundation and being careful in the work of evangelism. Actually taking time. I mean, Jesus was very conversational with interesting people. So was Paul. And some get the idea you need to adopt some strange tone of voice. And arguing is useless, by the way. I don't even have time to, to, to say much on this, but let me just point this out. The idea that evangelism means we become like the world to win them, it's hard to find a more satanic philosophy than that. I'll just say that. That'll be the topic for somewhere else. You don't find that in the Scriptures either. All right, we are almost done. Number five, look for supernatural evidence of conviction of sin. Now, outward evidence can vary. Some are emotional, some aren't. But, but here's what they're going to have in common when somebody's at the point of salvation. There is very little need for outward coaxing and pleading and manipulation techniques because there will be an inward compulsion, a God-wrought urgency in some form or another that's going to express itself in what must I do to be saved. I take a guy who's drowning. He doesn't know he's drowning. Friends, you can bounce life rafts off his head all day long. But when he's awakened to the fact he's doomed, he's coming after that life raft. What brought the Philippian jailer to that point? Trembling, he falls down behind these two, beside these two convicted criminals, so he thought to say, what must I do to be saved? Or Felix, trembling in Acts 24, but turned away. Or the man coming to Christ, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Or the blind man, Lord, remember me. Uh, or son of David, have mercy on me. Or the criminal on the cross, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Or at Pentecost, they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Or the publican, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or the eunuch in Acts chapter 8, here's water. What is stopping me from being baptized? What do you see? A God-wrought urgency from within to an awakened soul that's ready to be saved. And we don't produce that. Prayer and plowing and time and a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And listen, when they get to that point, we have to give biblical answers, not man-made phraseology. You don't find the sinner's prayer in the Bible. If that rubs you further the wrong way, turn the cat around. It's a butchering of Romans 10 is the only faulty leg that has to stand on, and that doesn't even teach that. Somebody's at that point, you know where you direct them? To Christ. Believe in Him. <clears throat> I'm not sure how. Plow. Why? Because as the object of faith is lifted up 
Faith is produced in the human soul. And the one who's prepared knows how to trust Christ. See that consistently. So none of this, ask Jesus into your heart or just say this. Did you really mean that? Are you sure you meant, did you grow? You cried. You must be here. Let me write this down for what a bunch of baloney. It's man-made baloney. It's not in the Bible. You can't improve on Paul's answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Which, by the way, in that passage, that wasn't the end. Paul then went to the man's house. There was further instruction. And that night he was baptized as a believer in Christ. Number seven, we have got to let God give assurance. It's a common practice. Somebody makes a profession. They take out a little pamphlet and say, well, let's see on... March 8th at 12.40 p.m., why you became a child of God. You don't know that. It's not my job to give you assurance. And it's not your job to give anybody assurance either. You point them to the Scriptures. You point them to the Holy Spirit. You can point them to books like 1 John, which is largely written that ye might know you have eternal life. And it gives evidences of what it looks like when a soul is born of God, but... It's God's business to give assurance, especially you parents with children. Be careful. Take time. Lay foundations. Plow. Pray. And when you feel your weakness and your insufficiency, and when you feel your ignorance, that's a good place to be. Because you can't save them. So we leave assurance to God, and then lastly... What's the proof of salvation? Again, we point people back to the Scriptures. Friends, proof of salvation is not you cried. It's not you were baptized. It's not you went to church. It's not grandpa was a preacher. It's none of that. Biblical evidence of salvation is two pillars. Do you, do you understand the Gospel and believe in Christ alone? And does your life back it up? Somebody comes and says, well, I just, know if I, I just don't know if I belong to God. I'm not going to tell them, oh, you do. We're going to pray. We're going to go to the Scriptures. But I'm going to tell them, I, I can't settle that for you. Don't put your trust in me. You've got to go to God. It's interesting. Even the apostles did that. <laughs> they didn't use their role to dogmatically tell people they were saved. Paul told the Galatians, I stand in doubt of you. And to Corinth, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And the writer of the Hebrews, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He's saying, I see evidence of salvation in your life. So I'm convinced you belong to God. And we have a convincing of one another as we know each other. But friends, the, the only person I really know is saved is me. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. The only person you can really know is saved is you. You can say, if somebody's trusted Christ, yes. But ultimately, that has to be between them and God. We have to stop. Thank you for your patience this morning. Again, if this is, I hope this has generated other discussion. But it's so important to me, we do not view evangelism as some irksome, fleshly, argumentative presentation or that God expects you to win every argument, that if somebody rejects God, that it's your fault and you didn't argue enough? No. <laughs> we want to work in cooperation with the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You.
for this time in your word, and I do hope this was profitable time. There's so much that can be said on this, but I pray, Lord, that we would have our understanding of spiritual and practical matters both based, based upon your word. Father, you know the state of everybody sitting here. You know if there's somebody sitting here who doesn't make a profession of faith at all, or maybe they do, but it's fake. Father, if, if that's the case, I pray you would awaken them to their doom. I pray you'd show them the utter inconsistency between profession and possession. I pray, God, you'd produce a fear of the day of judgment that only you can produce. A sense of your high and holy character. A sense of the day when all of our lives will be dumped out and revealed for exactly what they are with all of heaven and the angels watching. Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us to deal honestly with you now while we have the chance of our own choice. In Jesus' name, amen.